Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tuesday night edition of the pod going to take a little bit different format than we've had before because i didn't think that the warriors or miami games were all that interesting so a lot of bucks celtics and then talk a little bit about the conclusion of those two series in five games then we have mark stein on to discuss the old coaching carousel yeah a, a lot of interesting observations we even discussed his report that uh, terry stotts could possibly be on the move from portland but let's start with this buck celtics game which i thought that both teams actually played just unbelievably hard in this game that bringing in marcus smart to what was already a series where at least you know the bucks finally found their gear in terms of the level of intensity that they needed in the two games at home and i thought that they largely kept that up in this game uh but just a few too many bucks mistakes down the end and they are going home down three two uh, to play game five on thursday night yeah this was a different kind of game because i think there you're kind of two minds with it or at least i am one is both teams played incredibly hard and did a nice job of gumming up what the other wanted to do i thought one of the big changes there was brad stevens changing the starting lineup and playing ojale instead of aaron baines i thought ojale did a nice job on the defensive end overall but at the same point there also were like the these the kind of the shooting splits if you like call it that were exacerbated by both teams but especially the bucks missing opportunities the few that were created and clean within the circumstance yeah tony snell in particular missed five wide open threes in his 13 minutes Thon Maker had to take a couple of tough bailouts. I actually thought that he played very well defensively, uh, despite the ending up following out and not really doing much on offense the way he had previously. Jabari even was trying. He got beaten a couple times due to inattention, but also just had uh, some like awesome efforts on the offensive glass, even which like you never see from him in the second half. And I thought particularly, you know, from like the seven minute mark of the fourth quarter on, that the Bucks defense was absolutely flying around most of the time that was a good thing but they just couldn't quite stay solid enough and I thought the two key plays of the game both of them were with Chris Middleton guarding Jalen Brown one time Horford got into the post and he was being guarded by Bledsoe Middleton tried to run over and scram Bledsoe and he really his man Braun just wasn't in a position where he could do that because his his man was just in the dunker role and then uh there whoever it was on the wing there was able to throw a nice pass to find him underneath um and, and Bledsoe didn't get it fast enough but I think even if he had the passing lane would have been exposed so that ended up being a one or two free throws from Brown 
I think it was Jabari who came down late and followed him. And then I thought another key possession, once again, Al Horford in the post was just this massive irritant for the Bucks, And that was really disappointing to me because when they just played him straight up, he didn't really do much. It hasn't really done much in this series in the post uh but when Giannis follows him and puts his arm over the top of his head and he goes right through his arm for a foul or people double team for no real reason like anytime they just force him into a jump hook like he's not hasn't been like killing them or anything it's just they overreact they foul him like they just cannot stay solid and so on this play Bledsoe left his man Rozier to go double Horford and Horford picked up his dribble Middleton was guarding Jalen Brown on the weak side I think Middleton was distracted by the fact that Bledsoe Bledsoe went to double and that he might have to go out and get Bledsoe's man Rozier and regardless of what the reason was he completely lost Jalen Brown again Brown cut along the baseline got a layup and those were other than that I thought they defended the Celtics very well in the fourth quarter but just those two times that you couldn't stay solid because this was such an intense defensive game they just couldn't get past them. I mean there certainly were many other issues that they had including just being totally unable to score for large swaths of the game uh and, and Giannis having by far his worst game of the series but that to me was at the those two breakdowns and, and you know a few more back doors given up by Bledsoe gambling at times and he also made some unbelievable plays too but overall I thought that he was probably a little bit of a negative for the defense and that's why the Bucks just weren't quite able to get it done what of these surprising sources of offense, not that there were that many for the Bucks in this game, was Shabazz Muhammad, who hasn't really made much of an impact in the series. I think he played a, a, a little bit. I can't yeah, honestly in the, remember. In the first couple games in Boston, I think he, he got some yeah, time. Yeah, in Boston. And it continued this weird tradition of the Bucks getting minutes from somebody that you didn't even know was going to play in that game, Thon Maker in game three. And then I can't remember who it was. There was somebody in game four that it was the same thing. And then, and well, and also, so Jabari Parker playing the defensive half of his life was was the, maybe the revelation there. And Muhammad only played 10 minutes, 11 points on nine field goal attempts. And, you know, he, he kind of knows his lane. He also almost made an amazing defensive play where after a missed shot, he, cra- he crashed in and deflected a Boston pass that I didn't think that Boston didn't expect to be contested, but no teammate was there to, to recover it. So the Celtics ended up just taking it out of bounds on the other side. Yeah, he was really at least aggressive about it you know coming in when snell was jacking up shots I mean, he'll at least be confident uh but just like it was really the death knell for him when he just missed two open three-pointers from the same spot in the same possession after they'd gotten an offensive rebound brogdon was only 19 minutes two points he went into his usual i've caught the ball and i have to dribble it three times before i lift my head up again and he was being beaten defensively by Jalen Brown in the post. That was something that Stevens went to more in this game. He always kind of brings out one or two th- new things to emphasize each game, it seems like. And the other thing that you mentioned was he started Horford, and it seemed like the thought there was, well, we know they're going to start Tyler Zeller, so let's stretch out Zeller and get the mismatch there and then when Thon is in we can go with Baines and try to beat him up uh, on the defensive glass that didn't really work uh, I thought Baines only ended up playing 10 minutes in this one but Seller was negative six he only played 10 minutes all in the first half they actually brought him back in the game as well when they and then they took him out after three minutes but they gave up like five or six points in the second quarter during that stretch and 
you know the another one of those little things i mean especially in this game like the, it just felt like every possession was so incredibly critical with these teams inability to score and some of the great defense that was being played and then they took zeller out and they went to Giannis at center and you know they started doing okay again but that was just a, a tough stretch and again like i don't think that zeller played badly for what he is i mean he didn't score but uh had an offensive rebound had like a nice stop defensively at one point during his stretch but um really was not very impressive from him and then the other thing that i thought really was the tipping point for the bucks being able to score adequately to being not being able to adequately score i mean one is just boston being at home but number two was the return of marcus smart in this game who did not shoot well we didn't expect him to of course he never shoots well to begin with he's coming off a thumb injury but he was the solution on chris middleton who had beaten up every other buck defender who had tried to guard him in this series and while middleton had a okay game shot a lot better than the rest of the team did at 9 out of 21 led them with 23 points led all scorers with 23 points uh i thought that smart caused enough problems for him especially late because he just middleton could not separate from him and there was a great stretch where they dueled in the second quarter where Middleton hit two impossible jumpers over Smart and then Smart forced turnovers the other two times and it was just that was just a great battle in it's a series that has had some great battles even if it hasn't been the prettiest basketball the athletes the intensity has made me really enjoy these last three games in particular now that the Bucks are actually like starting to bring it defensively. I also thought Smart did a better job than any Celtic has to this point of making life harder on interior passes to Giannis so that could be both lobs and Alex oops i just thought he he got in the way a lot more yeah. and smart yeah you know, he, came, he came over for the weekend he looked explosive too i think you know he always seems to be dealing mm-hmm. with like some kind of lower body injury and i think this time off might have actually been good for him and, and to come in rested the way he was like his energy showed i mean like he was the first like 30 seconds he was in the game he dove for loose ball his matchup with delhi was was enjoyable too although delhi did not play nearly as much as in the milwaukee games what else you got from this one well i i think one of the elements we have to discuss Gus from this game is the official it's not even an officiating issue I don't even really know I guess it's a rules issue that happened late in this game super weird circumstance so what happened was I think it was about a minute 40 left and Al Horford takes a a three just kind of a desperation shot and it misses and the ball bounces out I think it was to Ojale and Ojale ends up getting fouled and so you would think about that like why is that a big deal but what happened was Al Horford took that shot after the shot clock expired you know he was in the air it expired and and he shot but the refs didn't see it and the problem is since no shot was made even though it was in the last two minutes that was not reviewable so the end result for the bucks wasn't as devastating because boston ended up not scoring on the the ensuing possession but time ran off the clock it was a five-point lead at that game it isn't the reason why they lost but it was so frustrating when we've seen i mean you and i have been doing the twitter nba show for a lot of these games the these interminable video reviews and so they have it for all this all these other things but a call that would have been correctable within you know a couple seconds can't be reviewed because it's not under the criteria yeah, we'll never say it would only take a couple of seconds that we, we know that's not true <laughs> but i said it could <laughs> i didn't say it would uh but no and i think it just you know ben thompson uh um of strategy also has a a, a bucks twitter account he's a huge bucks fan he he was saying that his interpretation of the rule was that it could be reviewed i i didn't necessarily read that rule that way ken mauer said to a pool reporter that it could not be reviewed i've certainly never seen that be reviewed in that situation where there is a shot clock violation but then a team gets an offensive rebound and 
time runs off the clock although there wasn't even like time ran off the clock right like it was two seconds later thon maker fouls ojale uh and i don't know who exactly who it was that he fouled ojale got the the rebound though i think he fouled rosier not that it matters a whole ton to the story right it was rosier and so i think they just didn't think of that rule right that there could be a situation because you know usually if they if he makes the shot then you know they review it under two minutes and if they if he i think it's actually after the last tv or the second tv timeout in the fourth quarter they review it right uh, immediately and if he misses no harm no foul but i guess they didn't really account for the idea of it hitting the rim and then there being an offensive rebound and there's a provision for a review to see whether it did hit the rim and whether the shot clock should be reset or not but that wasn't the situation here and so i, I think that's something, something that they could very easily potentially fix but uh to have the referees get discretion to look at that if in fact an offensive rebound occurs but you know again it was a five-point game and the bucks did not score on the next possession anyway and then the, the next bucket after that was marcus smart falling down with 28 seconds left still somehow beating three bucks to the loose ball and then assisting al horford for a dunk to make it a seven point game and, and that ended it so uh, yeah there's no way that it costs them the game you can't really make that argument but uh, i agree that it's something that they might want to and could easily change in the off season um the shooting in this game was horrific for the bucks actually it was impressive for this limited three-point shooting team to get up 33 three-point attempts but they just could not hit them and 27 percent nine out of 33 a few more of those goes down the celtics weren't much better either they actually but for the bucks actually out shoot the celtics from three in terms of attempts it was impressive oh something on their on their shot chart that i found interesting so milwaukee shot 45 percent, so significantly better from mid-range and i think some of that is is chris milton related i mean he's just such a fabulous player in that range i think Giannis actually hit one surprising fadeaway yeah. i'm I, I, that was just saying they're going on but milwaukee the other place they had a big failing and this is not i mean boston has better rim protection maybe than some people give them credit for but milwaukee was one for 13 from floater range in this game oof yeah that's not very good and much was made of course this is another topic here that Giannis only took five field goal attempts now he did get to the foul line for nine attempts so that's 14 shooting possessions pretty low his usage was a little weird they sat him for like almost eight minutes in the first half seven minutes in the first half and then just played him the entire second half and he clearly was exhausted by the end i thought it, it most manifested on one play where he got a defensive rebound and normally he would just push that down the the opposition's throat in the fourth quarter and he kind of just hesitated for a beat and then he's like oh yeah i guess i am supposed to do this and then he, he tried to drive later in that possession didn't go anywhere but it is worth noting to me that while it is you, you should try and get him the ball he's doesn't really produce that much in isolation like he doesn't have that many moves especially down the end of games a lot of times it devolves into him shooting a fadeaway or a mid-ranger and that's not really an amazing shot he's not shot well on those attempts this season or in his career really and he did have nine assists 10 rebounds that, that was good but this idea of all right you gotta feed Giannis you know every time just let him go yeah all right if they're really spacing the floor maybe uh if he has the right matchup I would like to see him get it more closer to the rim which they just have not succeeded on I would really like to see him get it more by t- them getting the switch 
switch with the smallest player that would be Rozier uh whenever Larkin was on the floor they've had sex but they just haven't run those plays enough in my mind and I was critical that they didn't get it to Middleton enough at the end of game four but with him being guarded by Smart that really changed I didn't think that was really the advantage matchup that he's had on virtually every other uh Celtic in this series uh, hitting impossible shots but he's actually getting separation and getting decent looks whereas he wasn't able to do that as much against Smart so Giannis you know he doesn't have a ton of moves off the dribble I thought that while he had the nine assists he missed some open guys in this game particularly where he really misses it is when he kind of gets into the lane and he'll put his back to goal or try to a spin move or just kind of try to work you know near the dotted line guys will come down and double team from the top and he can just throw it right back out to the top for a three and he always seems to miss that pass uh he missed Delhi wide open on that in the the first quarter and ended up throwing it to the wing and then they threw it back up top to Delhi, but uh or actually i think it was maker actually but by that point the guy had closed out and ended up blocking maker's three-pointer so I think that's something that they could do to get him going is still, you know, try to do the get the switch with the small guard, not let him switch back out of that. That's where they've had a fair amount of success. What else you got on this one? Anything else to show up to you? Any like adjustments that pop out to you at all? I still think Thonmaker should start. Oh yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that, and, he, and he started the second half, and that's what was so frustrating he about did. it too. Was Prunty knew what the best thing was, especially once you see that they've started Horford as well, right? Like, uh, maybe you bring in Zeller if you re- really don't want to go with the honest side. You bring in Zeller briefly, like to match up with Baines yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean that's really the only guy for him to match up with uh maybe smart was on a minutes limit but i didn't really see what the point was for the celtics of playing shane larkin who just can be very easily attacked defensively by this Bucks team. I mean, Rozier played 33 minutes. He could have easily played more. Smart was only 25. Uh, he probably could have played more. Marcus Morris could have played more. I mean, he could have found some more minutes. Uh, I thought Ojale was awesome. I mean, part of, he deserves a lot of credit. He had the main assignment on Giannis quite a bit, and he is a very quality defensive player. I thought the Bucks could have done more to not guard him. You know, that's not something like Houston does a great job of shrinking the floor. The Warriors do a great job of shrinking the floor off of guys who can't shoot. The Bucks are not that. They fly around. They've got a ton of length. But they're not clinically deciding, okay, here's who we're not going to guard. We know the scouting report. You know, that's not the way that they really seem to play defense. Aside from that, you know, I still think they should have tried to find some more minutes for Delhi. I did like that Stevens really instructed them to pressure up on him and make it difficult for him to bring the ball up, get it into the offense. He's just too slow to beat that strategy. I would like to see a little more spread pick and roll for Eric Bledsoe by the Bucs. Uh, the Bucks did a lot more switching in this game. I mean, I think it worked. They played a good enough defensive game to win, I, I thought. Just, you know, a few too many dumb fouls, a few too many back doors. But, you know, they still allowed well below a point per possession. That was good enough to win, and they just... We're not able to get out in transition. We're not able to hit enough threes. Uh, I expect them to win game six. Uh, and, and I think we'll go back for a, a game seven. We'll find out which of us is going to be right. You'll obviously be have the big advantage, but it just it just seemed so crazy like for this Bucks team. Uh, and, and this does seem like it has game seven written all over it to me because the, the Bucks just uh, so thoroughly outplayed the Celtics in Milwaukee. But maybe with Smart back, the Celtics are just going to shut them down so badly 
that it's not going to matter. Yeah, it's possible. I don't have a good. I don't have a good read on this. After you know, I I talked about it after Game Four that I thought the Celtics found a little something, but Marcus Smart really added to that, and the Bucks' struggles offensively were definitely concerning in terms of where the series goes for those who want them to win this series. I will talk about the rest of the night's uh, action briefly, but first, this from NetSuite. I know we have a lot of small business owners who who listen to this show. Maybe your business is not so small anymore and you're starting to outgrow QuickBooks. So shared spreadsheets, manual processes, those dreaded legacy systems. Are they costing you time and money? NetSuite by Oracle is the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. You save time, money, and unneeded headaches. It manages sales, HR, finance, and accounting instantly right from your desk or even your phone. I know a lot of us who own small businesses, sometimes we can make our own schedules, so we get away, we work from remote locations. Now you can manage all this stuff on your phone and at a more affordable price than you think. Right now, they are offering you valuable insights to help you overcome the obstacles that are holding holding you back for free they've got this guide crushing the five barriers to growth that will help you unleash your business's full potential when you're really when you're going from being focused on providing the best service and products that you can and now you're becoming popular and it becomes a logistics game of how you're going to grow and replicate that once you get beyond a few people doing the work this guide can really help you with that crushing the five barriers to growth you learn how to acquire new customers increase profits and finally get visibility into your cash flow as well so you can get that at netsuite like an office suite netsuite.com slash cap space that's netsuite.com slash cap space easy to cap space we talk about it all the time on the program as we will soon as we get into our off-season previews pretty shortly here once again, that is netsuite.com slash capspace to download their free Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth guide today, netsuite.com slash capspace. So we were at Warriors Spurs tonight. Golden State controlled the game, had a double-digit lead, basically from the second quarter on, never quite put away the Spurs, ended up really struggling. They only had 10 points through the first nine minutes or so of the fourth quarter. The Spurs only had 18, and they actually managed to get it back to a two-point game with under a minute left. The Warriors looked like they were in real trouble. Draymond Green got swarmed as they did a great job denying both KD and Clay. Had to call the timeout with nine seconds on the shot clock and then they're able to get kd open and, and he drained the, the mid-ranger kd couldn't hit a three to save his life in this game and, and basically neither team could uh the spurs were seven out of 30 and the warriors were five out of 27 but the warriors did take it it was an utterly boring series i don't really care to talk about it that much other than to note that lamarcus aldridge played a wonderful game with 30 points uh he had 25 in the second half yeah, he had 13 in the fourth quarter. Um, and, and was really, I, I thought he did a great job of making quick decisions, going right at the defender there, getting the switch on him a lot. He destroyed Kevin Durant, who is not really a, a great post defender against anyone who's got any, any kind of strength. Uh, but the Warriors did just enough. Clay Thompson had 24, and despite that 5 of 27 three point shooting, they will play the Pelicans on Saturday. Anything else you want to talk about from this game, or should we do talk a little bit about what this Warriors Pels series is going to look like? One other thing, briefly, for reasons that are partially beyond me, Steve Kerr still trusts Kevon Looney way too much, and down the stretch, that's part of the reason the Warriors kept hemorrhaging points. Is that Looney he fights on defense, but he didn't really have enough to either shut down or not shut down, but even tone down Lamarcus Aldridge or really stop that many guys on switches. And then offensively, he is just so limited. That 
the Spurs were able to attack off him in everything other than offensive rebounds. And so there. Oh no, he also had zero offensive rebounds. Well, you know, but that's that's the only place you have to account for. Yes, him. yes. The all the other all the other stuff you don't have to. And they Kerr eventually brought in Livingston, went to Draymond at center. You brought this up on Twitter. I agree with you that if they wanted to play a center, it should have been David West. I think that Kerr, for whatever reason, doesn't play David West in key situations. And it didn't matter in this series; they were able to overcome it. Really, the only centers who played because Pachulia got DNPs and Jordan Bell only played kind of in garbage time were Looney McGee, who started all five games, and David West. But Kerr has this. You know, it wouldn't matter. I wouldn't talk about it as much as I do, except for the late games in the 2016 finals, where after Andrew Bogut got hurt, Kerr basically tried everything in the, but the kitchen sink, and that was a part of the reason they lost that series. Yeah, and with Steph not out there, the Draymond at center doesn't make quite as much sense. Also, Draymond had five fouls towards the end. Um, Livingston actually was good in this game. He had a, a quick four field goals in the third quarter, and West did play 18 minutes, which is a lot more than usually. And he closed a couple of games this year at times like he closed that win over the Lakers he had that big block of Lonzo Ball right at the end after KD hit the game winner but yeah I mean especially against the Spurs I thought he he was by far the most effective of their centers and it was kind of funny listening to him like summarize what the centers had done and like he's like oh and Luden played a lot of minutes <laughs> like yeah yeah he did Steve <laughs> uh you, you could make anyone on the roster play a lot of minutes if you want to that's not a huge accomplishment uh he had a good game three but that was uh that was about it for for the series and the reason we're harping on this is him trying to guard Anthony Davis him trying to protect the rim against Drew Holiday if we're going to transition to that series trying to to switch and get out on the floor against someone like Miritich I don't expect that to be that successful I imagine the Warriors just because you know any coach that wins has to just stick with what they did last game other than Brad Stevens will start McGee in that series but I I don't expect that to go well uh McGee trying to deal with AD and New Orleans guards in the pick and roll I don't think is going to be too good do you have a pick for this series yet I don't yet, unless you're forcing me to. No, no, we, we can want to get a little bit. Yeah, more. we can save it for later. Yeah, but but I will talk about what I'm looking. I mean, you for did write an I've entire preview this on this series already before before it was. I even wrote over one. It. I'm probably going to write a second. <laughs> yeah, I got. I I don't care about getting shit on things like this, but it was it was it was funny to write that, and it came out the day before Game Four of this series, and then the Warriors lost that game. But the the big question for me with this series is going to be something that Portland couldn't really do much against New Orleans is which of these two teams can get the other team's best interior defenders that would be Anthony Davis for New Orleans and Draymond Green for the Warriors out of the paint with any regularity so if Kerr starts with JaVale and then JaVale would be guarding Anthony Davis then Draymond Green is guarding Nikola Miritich Nikola Miritich is completely cool just standing out on standing out on the perimeter and making Draymond Green stand with him and they could try something like putting Draymond on Rajon Rondo or they they, they could they could fiddle with that but rondo shoots enough threes where maybe the warriors aren't comfortable with that uh, i think that and would be a very interesting end, strategy actually i kind of I, I, that's right. that's actually what that's I would one do. that i don't see them starting with necessarily but you could see them going to that letting draymond help just go under on on rondo uh he's still kind of got the length to contest around the screen if rondo tries to drive on draymond uh draymond can block his shot from behind he won't be able to finish at the row i think that would be a very very interesting strategy uh, 
for the yeah, Warriors. And, and and then on the other end with Davis, it's who do the Pelicans put him on? Because there have been some people who have been obsessing over the idea of Anthony Davis guarding. That's Kevin not going to work. Which that would, is, there's no which way that's going to work. certainly be interesting. It's not going to no, work. It, because but any it's not going to work. Also, it takes yeah. him out of what he right, wants. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it takes him out of any help at the basket area, obviously, too. But, I mean, he can't. Anthony Davis like can't get over a screen and guard Kevin Durant like KD will just come off a screen and just get an open mid-range jumper pretty much every time or or they'll just set a screen with the center and then who it'll be Miritich on on him I mean it's like KD AD is not going to be able to play KD in in the pick and roll it's just it's just not how it works well and also think about the think about the fatigue element of it as well like even if like all the other stuff goes Anthony Davis is going to have a lot of burden on the offensive and he's going to play a ton of minutes in this series you can't have have him guard Kevin Durant for more than like on switches that sort of circumstance yeah so then it goes out to Etwan Moore or Solomon Hill if they have to make that change New Orleans really sacrifices a lot offensively that gives the Warriors a place to hide a couple of different options there so yeah a lot of different elements and I think the other central figure for me of the series and I talked about this a little bit with the Draymond part is Rondo because Rondo has a lot of specific strengths and a lot of specific weaknesses and it is a significantly harder thing to hide him defensively and largely that is what new orleans did in in the series against portland it's so much harder to hide him against a team that starts presumably steph curry clay thompson and kevin durant than portland because portland always had someone else well and i mean that's obviously if curry comes back that completely changes the complexion of the series offensively then you're really if you're new orleans you're gonna have to be switching everything and then you know rondo is just not gonna hold up in the post like he just doesn't try enough in the post defensively and there's you know it'll also i mean they'll probably if the the warriors do that then it's probably going to be i mean i guess curry could always guard like an etuan more too if he's going to be on the floor or solomon hill you know, that that won't be a problem either but i mean the latest on stuff you know it doesn't sound like i mean it seems like really especially since the series is starting over the weekend that the first two games and there'll be a big gap before game three you know that they would love to just have him not come back until game three he's been participating in modified practice Practices, but you know, he's not supposed to be reevaluated until the end of the week here and as conservative as they are i mean i think even if they feel like even if they split the first two games at home if they can get stuff back and he's closer to 100 percent that they can roll this team and they're probably quite right about that if he's closer to 100 percent. but it really you know this is not the ankle sprain this is a, I, I don't expect him to be 100 percent. we were lucky the warriors were lucky that kevin durant was able to come back and be as close to 100 percent as he was i think he was also helped to some degree by the calf injury that he had where he got to kind of sit out even more time uh, after he came back and obviously he had a, a wonderful playoffs but yeah once curry comes back and they have to switch everything you know that's really when i think their defense is going to fall apart because if ad is out in the perimeter they really have nothing else to protect the basket with drew holiday is, is a great player but again you know if they if you have to switch everything he can only guard so many guys and he the impact of any one perimeter defender in a lot of ways can be muted against the warriors unless you know you're really going with the strategy like boston where you're never going to switch so that's going to be a very interesting question to me i think probably the biggest one strategically is especially when curry comes back what is the scheme for the pals are you going to switch ad could do that 
Miritich, eh, you know, probably not that well. Uh, although Steph off the dribble, you know, that was the biggest thing that was compromised when he had the MCL injury back in 2016. But he certainly is always going to be, you can expect him to be very solid coming off of screens. You can expect him to be, you know, still have the incredible gravity, still be a threat in transition, still going to be able to make deep open shots. And that's that's all the Warriors, I think, are going to need to get past the Pels as well. But I do expect it to be a challenge. I think if Steph doesn't come back till game three, if he's not 100%, like I could see this going six or seven. I won't make my official pick yet either. Uh, I'll wait until you're, I read your second preview. And then when I really have all the information, then I can then I can make my pick. Do we want to talk briefly about Sixers heat? Yeah, this one kind of went according to plan. It, it was Miami was down by 18 at times in the second half. I didn't really see the first half of this one because I was watching the end of Buck Celtics and uh, with Stein. Oh, it was gross. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, lots of just just shaky offense. I mean, it's hard with these two teams because they both compete defensively and they both can be inconsistent offensively. So you would have these weird stretches where just you would be frustrated by the mistakes and everything else. And then you would have other moments where, you know, thing, things looked a little bit more coherent. I thought the Sixers offense looked so much better when Joel Embiid was on the floor just because he provides an outlet for a lot of their stuff. He actually made more of those weird two-pointers that he, that he you know, like kind of the floater runner type stuff that he does sometimes. But overall, I mean, I the reason I picked this series in seven was basically the uh, the uncertainty principle. A with Embiid and B with the Sixers just generally. They hadn't done this as a group. A lot of them hadn't even been in this situation individually. And what became clear around Game Three was Philadelphia is just the better team, and gravity, generally speaking, ends up going in that direction over the course of a series. And so once this game was tied at halftime, you kind of went, okay, I have a pretty good idea of where this is going to. Well, go. especially because the Heat outscored the Sixers in all four first halves and then gotten outscored in all four second halves and of course uh, that's what ended up happening in this one it was a 34 to 20 third quarter that did them in and Embiid was plus 22 is back to the early days Amir Johnson was negative 13 in, in only eight minutes Fultz did not play at all it was McConnell getting the minutes as well he even was playing some on on Wade defensively Wade was harassed in a four of 15 shooting after the game Wade said you know I love Philly, but I'm not making any kind of an announcement in Philly. Uh, although it does seem to be a little bit in the tea leaves that he this could be it for him, uh, because he, the fact that he's made his way back to Miami, the ring chasing didn't really work in Cleveland. By the this way, year. how crazy would it be if for if we think about this from a few years ago, if Dwayne Wade retires before Manu Ginobili? Huh? Yeah, that would be. I, I mean, Manu could still play. I hope he comes back. Uh, yeah, he he was. So I, I I stayed in the Spurs locker room after the game partially because I have a I, I've always kind of had that affinity for Manu and thought if this is the end it would be kind of amazing to be there for it and he gave the exact answer I expected which was I'm going to take a month or two to think about it I don't make any quick decisions we'll see what happens yeah and if he does retire we could talk a little bit more about that it seemed like last year was his coronation to the point where we even like discussed some of our memories of him after they were eliminated but uh, he did in fact come back and, and I certainly enjoyed his work this season that, that game four was a, a great potential farewell for the hometown fans uh, if in fact uh, he does hang it up but back to the heat we'll have much more on them and their offseason of course we're going to start offseason previews probably early next week i would imagine once we get into the second round and we don't have four games per weekday to talk about like tomorrow um 
Hassan Whiteside, two points, 10 minutes, three fouls, 04, did a four offensive rebounds. Uh, he said after the season, or after the game and the season concluded, that he hoped to have a discussion with management. He was not happy with his minutes. I certainly understand that. It's not like he played well uh, this series, though, even and, and matched up against the most, uh, not the most traditional, but the biggest of centers. You can understand maybe his frustration, even if he doesn't quite get it. I mean, no player is going to say, oh, yeah, like I saw they should have taken me out you know but he's a little more outspoken than most uh, and they presumably will try to move him during the offseason uh, i don't know that they will succeed i think he can certainly get healthier although uh, the age curve is starting to catch up to him a little bit as well josh richardson who remember had that sprained ac joint i would imagine that's part of why he only played seven minutes he, had, he did have three fouls in those seven minutes um and this heat team just didn't have enough firepower i mean philly was seven on 28 from three again this is i think there's three games in this series where they shot under 30 percent from three and then they shot over 50 percent the other two but they happened to win two of those three games and uh in rather comfortable fashion the heat were broke from outside as well at 10 out of 35 so this heat team just has to get some more firepower Philly and B look better in this one. He's starting to get his stride. Um, if you were Philly, would you rather place face the Celtics or Bucks? Marcus Smart's return and him looking so good makes the Celtics a less appetizing possibility than they were before. But I still think their their ceiling is lower than Milwaukee, and a team's going to have to play close to their ceiling. Either of these two teams in their current state, so I think you'd have a higher chance of beating the Celtics, even if it might be kind of like pulling teeth. So I would rather play the Bucks. I would to play them than the Bucks. Yeah, I think the Bucks are more dangerous. I think they can reach a, a higher ceiling than the Celtics can offensively. I'm just not sure that the Celtics could score well enough against the Sixers teams. The Celtics don't have a great Embiid matchup. If it's going to be Baines, you know, the, then you're, they're going to be even more limited offensively. The Celtics aren't going to go like mismatch basketball against JJ Redick or something or, or Marco Bellinelli. That's not quite the way that they play. But certainly, I think. Uh, which series is likely to go longer? I would say the Celtics, especially due to the home court advantage and just how hard they play and, and how tough they can be to beat at home. But which series would the Sixers be more likely to lose? You know, you might say Bucks, uh, just because the Bucks have just the, that incredible talent, even if the Sixers are have more incredible talent and, and are much better coached. Um, so at least the Sixers would, of course, have the home court against the Bucks. But uh, that's a little ways away. We've still got game six of that series coming up uh, on Thursday, and it could even go seven and so you could start a little bit later anything else you want to say on that or uh should we wrap up this segment here we can wrap up the segment but there is a small small little bit of news oh, yeah. i think we yeah. should do just because it's gonna it's gonna get past us if we don't do it now yeah so uh let's let's start with the kings a couple different p- small pieces of the, news the there sydney kings intriguing no not the sydney kings we'll start with the second okay because because we have something on the sydney uh, kings too we do bogdan bogdanovich had uh they're calling it minimally invasive uh, meniscus debridement he has a slight tear of his medial meniscus in his left knee so procedure is done in new york haven't heard anything in terms of the timetable i would i doubt that that would affect you know next season it's a long time until next season for the kings and then also from bobby marks because of the 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 kings are, are amazing in terms of they have so many guys that they're paying money to that are playing for other teams around the league or even retired in the case of matt barnes yeah. or karan butler so don't they, get karan butler too what a nice job by him to pick up that player option and then get and then get yeah. cut and now he's but, working for nba tv so he is so 
due to setoffs, Sacramento got an additional two million in cap space for this season, meaning the 17-18 season. And they might not use it. Entirely possible they won't. But now, per Bobby Marks, they have about five point four million in in money that they can use, and that you cannot trade for a player who is expiring. So it's not like hey, just like a bookkeeping thing. But theoretically, if they want to be a little bit creative, they could do something. Now. Yeah, and the the way that that works is when you waive a guy if he gets picked up by someone else there is a a set off against what you owe him if the they make money from the new team it's not all of it you can still double dip to some degree um and if you do a buyout then there's no set off at all but and this is something that came into play with the josh smith scenario back in detroit people were like oh yeah well you know like he because they're like smith is still pretty good right like he could get signed somewhere he ended up only ever playing for the minimum again but it didn't help Detroit. It doesn't really help because you have to see how much did the guy make during the season before you can apply the setoff. So as it doesn't get applied until the last day of the regular season, and then you do have this weird period now where they get an extra two million in cap space. So that it's really just to facilitate any trades around draft time that would be legal around draft time just to maybe take on a little bit more money. I doubt it'll end up mattering, but it is an interesting quirk there. Uh, the Magic they. Uh, dismissed their athletic and strength training staffs after an injury-filled year and with a new regime coming in with Jeff Weltman. That's not entirely surprising. Uh, They also, of course, fired Frank Vogel and and three of his uh, assistant coaches. The OKC Utah series almost lost all of its remaining intrigue with talk that Russell Westbrook might be suspended for coming onto the court during an altercation. Instead, he was fined 10K and assessed a technical foul for getting into an argument and a very mild shoving match with Rudy Gobert it was kind of a gray area because he was at the scorers table waiting to check in so it's not you're not really technically leaving the bench area because he already had left the bench area. he's at the scorers table waiting to check in there was some debate over whether he had in fact been invited into the game by the referees but thank god the league didn't suspend him thank god that would have been so frustrating and not learning i mean not learning from from the mistakes and i'm happy that whether you want to call it a technicality or a loophole or just the genuine interpretation of the rule whatever it is i'm happy it happened the way it did yeah and this has consistently been the interpretation with adam silver you know if a guy takes three steps off the bench and then goes back you know they just whatever the rule technically is i mean it still needs to be on the books so that when guys really do leave and get involved that they can bring the hammer if you know someone runs off the bench and throws a punch or something like that that's why the rule exists because you know if someone runs off the bench they can even if they're just running to break it up remember like kermit washington right like saw someone running at him out of the corner of his eye and punched him and, and you know totally broke rudy sometimes face to give one example but we're not in the david stern era anymore there's not the patrick ewing getting suspended in 97 there's not the uh, although that was a pretty big fracas there's not of course the suns in 2007 that issue going on and so i think it would take hopefully someone really getting involved leaving the bench like running across the court and and with them being at the scorers table it was a good uh way to get out of it you'll recall of course that uh, back in 2007 the suns tried to use the idea that amari sadamire and dia were like we're going to the scorers table to check in which was obviously bullshit at the time but it it sucked that those guys had to get suspended and all these people on twitter who like oh man like rules are rules it's like why do you even watch basketball dude like like this is how you're gonna get off is like some guy getting suspended for this rule like no like the sport is about competition 
it's it's about being an opponent at their best not just like winning on some stupid technicality it reminds me of one of my uh favorite onion headlines uh jurisprudence fetishist gets off on technicality yeah that's fantastic <laughs> uh what else we got here alvin gentry had his option for next season picked up by new orleans i do not know just in, with the nuance of it if this precludes any sort of extension i don't think it no, of does, course not but picking it up they, they can do coaches can a, do whatever they want executives can do whatever there's yeah. no no rules they're not for subject to the cba yeah. yeah so they could do something bigger who knows if they will but we know that alvin gentry will be the coach of the pelicans next year which is great yeah certainly i think uh, they he and his staff uh, have done a nice job this season and i think the interesting thing will be you know is there an extension that comes out of this you know and what happens with cousins could be a very interesting part of that what happens in this next series right i mean if they just get swept by the warriors and they don't even have steph curry for half the series it's gonna be a lot different than if they take him to seven or god forbid even win the series in dallas you'll recall that Wes Matthews had a stress fracture in his right fibula had surgery to fix that he has an MRI scheduled this week to determine whether that is healed or not and he also told Dwayne Price that he will pick up that player option for uh, uh it's like 18.2 million something like that something in that range yeah I believe so <laughs> uh andrew bogut has retired from the nba he signed a two-year deal with the sydney kings in australia you recall that bogut was waived by the lakers shortly before the league-wide cutdown date the party line was that he was going to look to sign with a playoff contender shockingly someone who was waived by the lakers was not the apple of playoff contenders eye and he with no nba outs in this contract it looks like that that'll be the last we're seeing of him which is too bad bogut an underrated player for much of his career you'll recall was the number one pick in 2005 there's the big debate was between him and marvin williams as it turned out the two guys who went three and four ended up being much better than either of those guys but bogut evolved into a great defensive player with the bucks and then had his career changed in 2010 he'd been a little injury prone before that but really had his career changed because he was a skilled guy i mean you remember he even used to like i remember him taking three pointers in the 2006 world championships against the u.s for instance and, and had a, a pretty nice jump hook game and was more athletic than he looked and then his career was really changed by getting shoved in the back by amari stoudemire in 2010 that was the uh the fear the deer season the original fear the deer season when uh he was going up for a dunk fell just totally destroyed his right elbow and it was never really close to the same again he became a really difficult for him to make free throws he had a bunch of ankle issues then of course was traded to the warriors and was a big part of their defensive renaissance but always remained somewhat injury prone. Never know what his injury in the 2016 finals you know, did to that series. I don't think that much because I think he'd become pretty ineffective by that point, especially offensively. And then he'll also be remembered for his 12 second career with Cleveland when he instantly broke his leg. That was just like, he definitely had some pretty bad injury luck. Uh, so uh, a career that was cut short, uh, sadly, uh, a guy who I think will be underrated of how good he was defensively as his peak but a key figure in the development early on of 
this Warriors dynasty and, and helping their defensive culture um and also uh an interesting character I think will will be uh despite having political views that not everyone agrees with uh an interesting guy who uh, I think you know made made the league more fun to follow and cover and it, it's too bad that he's not gonna be in it anymore yeah it certainly is an adjustment and I got to appreciate him initially at Utah he was a, a wonderful player there I, I can't remember if he won national player of the year but he was definitely spectacular and then of course was the first overall pick in the draft and it always felt to me like he never like he never put it together in the same way that I hoped he would but his offensive talent as you said was was phenomenal when he was when he was at that and then I thought he got he kind of got better defensively a little bit older just like most a lot of centers do especially those who are offensively talented he had such an a connection with that and the communication did a really good job and I thought he was a, a, an ended up being a nice bridge from Mark Jackson to Steve Kerr and I don't know this but considering he was one of the more critical members critical meaning you know being a being a critic of Mark Jackson that that might have actually eased that transition because Jackson was super popular among a, a section of that Warriors team and they won the championship Kerr's first year. Bogut also noteworthy as one of the very few players to get a veteran extension under the 2011 CBA which eviscerated veteran extensions but it just so happened that his market value for his next deal was pretty much right in line with what his previous deal had been and he ended up uh staying with the Warriors signing that contract uh all right I think that'll do it for the coverage of today's games but we're gonna bring in Mark Stein in just one second here I've been wanting to talk to Mark Stein. He's uh, had his ear to the ground about some of these coaching openings. I had some interesting tweets uh, on the subject, which we'll get to. But I want to just open it up to you, Mark, to begin with, to just say, you know, what what are some of the more interesting things you're hearing about these coaching vacancies? Well, I'd say one is just this sense that it's only getting started and that somehow what happens in the playoffs is going to give the carousel another firm shake that maybe we didn't see coming a week or two ago. And, and obviously that all ties right into Portland. Nobody thought the Blazers were going to get swept. And naturally, that's going to put both Terry Stotts and the GM Neil Olshay under the microscope. So I think a lot of people are curious what's going to happen there. But right now, I mean, look, Milwaukee... They're still in the midst of a playoff run, so they're they're not even starting a search. So really, it's it's been the Knicks, Phoenix, and Charlotte. You know, they're the three teams at work, and I'm just I'm just waiting for the chance to tweet that Danny Larue gets an interview with the Suns because I think they're talking to everybody. So maybe. Uh... <laughs> Maybe your boy, maybe your boy's gonna get a look. Yeah, unfortunately, by the way, he he could not join us because we he and I are already gonna be recording another like two hours of podcasts today later on. Although um, although his his Twitter persona really isn't he's not really he's not really red on round ball is he he's he's a cap guy he's not sitting there savaging coaches that's not that's not his Twitter game <laughs> is it? Nah, he's he's uh been been known to do that on occasion. We, we were pretty critical of the Thunder last night their their strategy defense defensively for for example against the jazz uh because it seems like they're kind of losing that series uh, on the defensive end but uh if you want to hear about that you can go back and listen to to last night's show yeah and it, it's interesting so you mentioned charlotte phoenix new york as the only teams that really seem to be involved right now and 
you know, certainly with uh, Stotts potentially becoming available, uh, which we'll talk about, it seems like Milwaukee too. Like it reminds me of those summers when LeBron James, nothing happens until he decides where he's going because he's like the first domino to fall, and you have to kind of wait for that. It seems like that's how it is with Milwaukee. That's going to be the best job out there. We'll see how much money and power and all that they're willing to offer uh, once their season concludes. Uh, presumably, the thought is they'll still move on from Prunty, but. Uh, you know if they make the east finals maybe they won't uh but anyway i i think do you think there's something to that the idea that until milwaukee or you know maybe portland too is going to be a pretty good job if that comes open before those good jobs fall that you know it's hard to really know who's going to be available for some of the jobs that maybe aren't so good i actually don't think it impacts phoenix i think phoenix look they they made a run at mike budenholzer and i would say budenholzer and fizdale were the top two guys on the suns list based on everything i know about the budenholzer situation uh, you know they never really got close to anything the contract that Budenholzer has in, in Atlanta is a monster and that makes any kind of deal in Phoenix complicated so they didn't get very far and the sense I get is that David Fisdale is just far too in demand to just jump at the Suns interest unless the Suns put some sort of crazy number on the table and I don't think that's really what the Suns are known for uh, you know Fisdale yeah. to me is at worst the co-favorite in New York. Charlotte has interest in him. He will be on Milwaukee's list if the Milwaukee job opens. And chances are, if other jobs open, he's going to be in the mix for some, if not all of them. So it behooves David Fisdale to take the more patient approach. But look, Phoenix is talking to a zillion different guys. They consider this their first round. Then they're going to narrow it down. But, uh, you know, I... I think the Suns would love if they could to have a coach by the end of the month. Is that feasible in another week? Maybe it's not. Maybe that maybe the process has gotten too wide for that to happen. But I, I don't. The Suns in particular, I don't feel like they're waiting. Or you know, Orlando is another team that that has kind of taken the slower approach, and and there's maybe a sense that that they might be waiting to see what shakes out in the playoffs, see if coaches we don't expect become available. Yeah, you, you mentioned them as potentially having interest in stats when. And uh, if and when there's some, uh, he ends up not returning in Portland. I want to pretend like that's fait accompli by any means. Yeah, but if you're the Suns, right? I mean, you you, you kind of just put it in a nutshell, even for them, that you know, if David Fisdale is their guy, well, Fisdale's not going to get take that job until he finds out he doesn't get. I might actually prefer the Suns' job to New York, just in terms of winning. But there's obviously other reasons to want to go to New York, including that they generally pay pretty well. Uh, you know, and if he doesn't get new york if he doesn't get milwaukee you know like so he's not going to be available and if you're the Suns, if that's your guy you know do you really want to hire someone else uh, until you find out whether he's available or not and he's not gonna be able to tell you that until some of these other jobs happen so it, it does seem like it, we're gonna be in somewhat of a stagnating uh, process here uh, let's return to budenholzer real quickly yeah phoenix not really known for paying coaches uh, under robert sarver particularly uh you do you get the sense that budenholzer who was once president of basketball operations in atlanta has some of those same aspirations again in his new gig to at least get some sort of say in personnel if maybe not the full president of basketball operations title yeah i would imagine that some semblance of influence over basketball decisions you know that's been he's been stripped of that in atlanta um but you know he again that you know the reported number on on budenholzer in atlanta is you know two years 14 million ish i've, I've been told it's even more than that so I wow mean, how 
how, you know, how do you, how do you get, you know, if you, he, he clearly wants to go somewhere else at this point. I mean, he's interviewed with two teams, uh, but what kind of separation agreement do you concoct when you're making that kind of money? If the team you go to, you know, let's just say they're going to pay more than half of it, but you know, four as opposed to seven a year. I mean, that, that makes things complicated. There's going to be draft compensation presumably involved. Uh, so it, it, it's a complicated negotiation and because of that, you know, is it inconceivable that he goes back to Atlanta? I don't think it is. I don't think it's inconceivable that he would have to go back because let's say Mike Budenholzer doesn't get any of these jobs. You know, are the Hawks just going to oust him now and, and, and pay him off at that number? No, they're not. You know, I, what you just said made me think of an interesting possible way to circumvent the CBA if you're Atlanta. Now, I don't know if Atlanta is really in a position to do this, but let's say, you know, Mike Budenholzer wants $8 million a year with the Milwaukee Bucks and Atlanta still owes him seven and but there's compensation that's going to be required to let him out of his contract well maybe you say to the Bucks if you're Atlanta hey you know what we'll let him out of his contract but we'll stay him still pay him three million so now you only have to pay and we won't get any kind of an offset we won't enforce that and now you only have to pay him four million you get him but you're gonna have to throw in another draft pick or two you know that would be very interesting uh to see you know presumably that would be circumvention because you know you can only spend a certain amount of money per year to to buy draft picks but uh j- just thought of that I, I i don't think we need to go too far into that but that would th- that would be interesting it just because, occurred to me at this early hour you, sa- you said there would be no math <laughs> you guys do all the um, math what about the chances of budenholzer pulling a dave yeager and eventually just returning to atlanta you think, you think that's off the table now no, uh, with these I, discussions no, I, I, no. I, I i because it because of this contract you know i think it has to be on the board as a possibility that he he if he doesn't get a job that he has to go back because you know what are they gonna you know how do you work out a buyout on 14 million you know that's a lot of money so yeah well it seems like the the hawks are almost it would be a relief to them in some ways both because they're certainly shaping up to tank again next year and budenholzer uh was almost too good for their tank this year they had to try really hard down the end of the year to uh you know and ended up only getting a top you know the number four seed i think it was in the lottery uh so and then to not have to pay that much when you're in the rebuilding mode and obviously the revenues are going to be down this year and and schlank and budenholzer you have to imagine with uh his pbo title getting stripped for budenholzer and buden or and schlank going in for the tank pretty hard budenholzer was did not do that obviously when he was uh in control of personnel so you it would seem like that would be on its path to being a frosty relationship so the hawks might almost be rooting just as hard for Budenholzer to get one of these other jobs uh you know as Mike himself is yeah look from what I gather you know the relationship is is not fractured that those guys coexist just fine but I think yeah as much even you know even more than than missing ultimate personnel power I mean Mike Budenholzer comes from the Spurs the Hawks were you know at their peak a 60 win team under his stewardship they were a playoff team forever they we never talked about it but they quietly had the second longest playoff streak in the league when it finally got snapped and you know I think he wants to coach a team that can compete that's what to me made his interest in Phoenix curious because 
the Suns are certainly further along than the Hawks are, but I didn't. that didn't strike me as a team that, that he'd love to be in charge of either. But he is an Arizona native, and the Suns do have some good young pieces, and who knows, maybe they pack, you know, package some, make a trade for a veteran, and they're more competitive. They have a quicker path to being competitive than the Hawks do right now. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, all right, let's talk about stats now. Your, your tweet, I think, caught many by complete surprise, as much complete surprise as the sweep itself did, that Terry Stotts could potentially be in some trouble there. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that? Look, I'm surprised too, because I think he did a fantastic job with a very limited roster. But the you know that talk about Terry's status has been circulating since even before the playoffs began, which is amazing to me. But uh, look, we, we've we've seen this from the Blazers in the past. You know, they they do act swiftly sometimes when when maybe we're not looking for it. But then you listen to everything that Neil Olshay said in his uh, you know in his playoffs post mortem the other day, and he sure seemed to downplay the notion of big changes of any kind. So you know we'll ultimately have to wait and see <laughs> yes. what happens. But when you talk to people in coaching circles, you know there certainly is concern that Terry is going to be made some sort of fall guy for this. Which again, I'm I think is ridiculous. I mean, like the rest of the Blazers, were there things in that New Orleans series that he would love to do over again? Did he have his best series as a coach? Absolutely not. He's got to be culpable for some of it. But, you know, again, I think if you look at this Blazers team, you look at the front court issues they have, you look at an unbalanced roster, and they almost won 50 games. They got the third seed in the West. They went on that hellacious winning streak that really set them up to have home court advantage in the first round. And you could say, yes, so many teams in the West were banged up. They just took advantage of that. I mean, you can diss, diss their season all you want, but, you know, I would say most of Terry Stott's peers feel like he overachieved with that team yeah and I feel similarly and I feel that he has largely done that in the course of his tenure going back to remember that 13-14 team that came out of nowhere as well uh that was supposed to be like a tanking team uh but react to a couple of things you said uh, I'm not surprised that Neil O'Shea has rejected the notion of sweeping changes because due to his moves sweeping changes are not really possible (laughs) and so it's certainly in his best interest to uh, and neil is uh rather pr inclined at times uh, shall we say uh but that's uh that doesn't surprise me that he would say that because it, he put together this roster that can't really be changed so he's gonna continue to say that he thinks it's good enough um and also i think we, just if you do want to make a move from a leverage standpoint you want to make it look like you don't have to make a move um and then for stats you know this isn't really fair to him but it's almost like because none of the other variables can easily be changed from a personnel standpoint and you've got dame lillard having met with the owner during this season and you're really uh, maybe on your last gasp with him at, at this point next year is his age 29 season you don't have many further chances to win with him before he either declines or just needs to be moved because he's getting close to the end of his contract or just wants to be moved um that the coach is really the only variable you can change and maybe it's probably more likely than not that stats a change with stats would make them worse but there's a slight chance that maybe you know it's grown stale and it could make them better especially in the playoffs and so you know that's kind of the last move left to them even if you know if you look assess the job that stats did it's nearly impossible to say that he's done a poor job overall well i think when people talk about sweeping changes in portland i think they're including old shea in that discussion i think there's frankly there's heat on terry but there's considerable fan heat on neil old as well who i think over 
overall has yeah. a very good record as a general manager, but obviously the summer of 2016 and all the money the Blazers spent that has basically locked them into this roster as you described it. I mean, that's all anyone wants to talk about when they when they talk about Neil Olshay in Portland right now because they don't have flexibility. They've spent a lot of money on a lot of guys who look like role players and, and average ones at best, so they're stuck. So, I mean, there's there's considerable heat on him as well. Will Paul, Paul Allen, you know, we, we've, you know, I, I kind of alluded to it before. We've seen this in the past, you know, when he decides it's time, it's time and he's not afraid to drop the hammer. So we'll see, you know, we'll see exactly what that means. But, uh, you know, I think the whole original intent of the tweet was just to note that uh, Orlando, from what I've told, would be very interested in Terry Stotts if he became available. And I'm told, I've since been told, you know, Phoenix would be right there with them, if not even expressing more serious interest. So uh, Terry Stotts has had a really good run in Portland as the coach there. And uh, if if he is turned into the fall guy here, I, I don't think he's going to be lacking for opportunity. No, and rightfully so, I would say. Uh, anything else that, that you wanted to comment on? I, I had a couple more questions, but I want to make sure we get to kind of everything that's on your mind here. Your show, my man. You decide. Take us where you want to go. All right. Um, the Bucks have rallied to tie it at 2-2. Uh, still, that means historically Boston is a massive favorite, but it kind of looks like the Bucks have figured some things out in this series. We'll find out a lot more. Uh, we're recording this during the day today. We'll find out a lot more in tonight's Game 5 uh, about how the books are looking in that series. But uh, what do you think it would take for them to bring back Joe Prunty? I mean, would it be just this series win? Would it be an Eastern Conference Finals? Is it just totally out of the question? You know, I, I think deep down their mindset is that we will be searching for a coach once this season is is over. But if they could beat Boston and then upset Philly in the second round, that would be fascinating to see what they do then. Because, look, the first round is not going to be enough because everyone will just say, oh, Boston was banged up. They didn't have their two yeah. best players. I, uh, I would be one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> I picked them to win the series, actually. Did so you? Bold. Because they, they certainly didn't go, they certainly didn't go into the playoffs with a whole lot of momentum i mean they've they've uh you know they've they, they've played the way they played at home is the best they've looked in a while but i, I sure. look i don't i don't think it's going to be enough i don't think i don't think beating a wounded boston team is going to be enough now if they were to turn around and then upset philly who a lot of people are starting to say might be the best team in the east now now it becomes a different discussion and i would think you know they have to they have to give joe prunty a real shot at that but we're still a long way from that i you know the way the way the sixers look uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you will not be picking Milwaukee to upset Philly in round two. We talked about this the, the last time you were on, but now that really interviews have started, who are the main assistant coaches who have never had a head coaching gig that seem to be getting the most interest as of this point? I think Igor Kokoshkov in Utah, he's already talked to the Suns. I think Chris Finch with the impact he's had in New Orleans and his offense, I think you're going to hear his name. There's a couple guys in Toronto, Nick Nurse and Rex Kalamian, you know, their names are going to be mentioned for head coaching jobs. And I'm sure I'm forgetting 20 other guys because I'm... Stackhouse, I think, oh, yes. I mean, in, Stack, in New York, we talked about. question. Yeah. I mean, he's already gotten head coaching interviews. So um, the, the, the question I wonder, though, is with so many established coaches, you know, Clifford is out there now. If Terry Stotts were to be thrown onto the market, uh, Fisdale, you know, 
there are some established coaches who are on the market who I would think are going to get a look just about anywhere else. And, you know, now, you know, Budenholzer has a job and is in the mix for other jobs. So that, I think, complicates things for assistants out there. Like when it comes to the Suns, for example, kind of the scuttle that's out there right now is that their preference would be to hire an established NBA coach for this job and 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 not most likely not go the assistant route. Charlotte, I would say, is a bigger curiosity. Same, you know, they're talking, they, you know, Stackhouse is on their list at Ettore Messina, another assistant that, that I should have mentioned. I mean, Messina's record in Europe is spectacular. He's coaching the Spurs right now in these horribly sad circumstances with uh, in the wake of, of Greg Popovich losing his wife. But uh, Messina is more than capable of being an, a coach in this league, should be a coach in this league. And I really hope, I really hope he gets his chance. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing to me, you know, how hard it is for coaches from foreign lands to, to gain consideration for head coaching jobs in the NBA, considering how global this league has become, where basically a fifth of the players come from other countries. But on the coach front, we're slower to adjust to that. Um, so, you know, um, Charlotte, oh, or, Charlotte, yeah, Orlando, right. I, you know, I, I don't think it's clear yet whether they're going to absolutely try to hire someone with head coaching experience or if they're willing to go the assistant route yeah and certainly for a lot of these teams you know i think phoenix has been out of the playoffs for so long uh, that they really want to as you mentioned get someone established if you're charlotte i mean maybe they're trying to make one last gasp here with this kemba walker thing uh and uh actually do you, do you get any sense at all of whether this cup chap regime cup regime has any kind of a mandate to make big changes personnel wise maybe look into moving walker or is the mandate hey you got us get got to get us back to the playoffs with this this core group so far the focus has really been on what they're going to do on the coach front so i think yeah they have but to- that matters a lot for the coach right danny was saying that the other day of like you know if kemba walker is going to be there uh not only he only has one more year left on his contract but if he's going to be there then well, I, that's I guess my, uh, my take on it is this now that kemba walker was out there to whatever degree it was whether they were calling 29 other teams trying to move him or just testing the market or gauging his value, whatever kind of term you want to put on it. Once he's been out there, even if they, quote, take him off the table, he's on the table. I mean, teams are going to call about him whether they want actively are looking to move him or not. So to me, that always creates the possibility possibility that there will be a move because there's always that chance that Team X is going to call them and say, all right, we've this is our offer. And the Hornets say, wow, well, actually, we can't pass that up. So I kind of feel like Kemba's in play now until he's not a Hornet, any, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and that does have an idea that it's going to be a first-time head coach there. That's kind of what it feels like the direction that that's going in because they are looking at a rebuild if atlanta comes open you have to imagine they would go in that direction to teams that uh either cannot attract a a great coaching candidate or you know understand where they are as a team maybe that's not charlotte but uh that certainly is atlanta they're gonna not want to spend a lot of money and you know big established coaches aren't necessarily gonna want to go there um last question here memphis you're all over the idea that they might retain jb bickerstaff if robert Perrin in fact retain 
control the team that has happened is that still look like they're on track to just bring him back again it's it's interesting i don't know that they've made that decision fully but you hear when you talk to people around the league and you know this time of year uh, you know it's it's as active on the phones as trade season in terms of people from the various teams that that want information about coaches around people in this league love talking about coaching situation potential gm openings it's just it's as you can imagine it's a topic that everybody loves to dig into what are the you know what are the magic gonna do what are the hawks gonna do what are the hornets gonna do you know people love it but 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 wait hold on i i was told that like the media is just totally salacious in uh you know speculating about these firings like how can we ever be be talking about these things you know no one in the league would ever want to discuss that it's always our fault. The sooner you learn that, the better. But I guess my, my, what I was trying to get, say is nobody that I've... I can't remember the last time somebody brought up the Grizzlies. So look, Robert Para, maybe he has a surprise in store, but I can just tell you, basically everyone I'm talking to is operating under the assumption that J.B. Bickerstaff is going to be brought back. And, you know, I guess ultimately we'll see until we get an announcement from the team that that's the case, that, you know, it's official. But as of this point... There is uh there there ain't much discernible Grizzlies chatter right now. Yeah, and I mean you would imagine there would be some indication of them reaching out to people if they're I mean if they're even going to do some interviews uh before bringing back JB. But well, now, that, now that we're, we talk, now that we're talking about yeah. this, as soon as it goes down, of course there will be they'll, they'll start. <laughs> yeah, cross, cross our fingers. We the got dunk, about eight hours before the this show gets released. The dunked on jinx. All right, well this is fun, man. Uh, don't forget about Mark's newsletter with the New York Times. Uh, get a lot of stuff in there that is not available publicly you can just put your email address in i've done so i i get that uh every week and uh we will uh bring mark back at, at some point later in the playoffs to uh discuss coaching changes anything else we'll have to preview the offseason at, at some point too thanks for coming on again mark sounds good man see you uh, at a warrior game soon reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 